but the potential impact you know could be 10x or far greater than 10x if you take the right next pass sometimes people think look if i had a larger closet that would solve the problem and uh, until they get a larger closet and then they realize at least over time that isn't the problem Hey folks, this is Mark Devine with the Unbeatable Mind Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today with my guest, Greg McCowan, McEwen. Is that right, Greg McEwen? Greg McEwen. Sorry about that. Uh, about 50% of the time I get my names right and the other, the other half of the time, oh well. Um, I'm a Navy SEAL, so I get a little bit of a pass on that one. Um, so Greg, welcome to the show. This is a take two for us, and we're going to cross our fingers that our internet doesn't go down. I'm out in Utah. You're in Silicon Valley, I believe, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, thanks so much for coming on. Hey, before I start, I'd like to remind uh, the listeners to go rate this show on on iTunes if you like what you're hearing. Uh, Give us five stars so other folks like you can find us. Um, And they're going to want to hear what Greg and I are talking about today. Uh, Greg, you're a public speaker. You're a leadership consultant. uh, You work for the World Economic Forum. uh, You're a a New York Times bestselling author of a book called Essentialism. Discipline Pursuit of Less, which I have read recently and I think is absolutely fantastic, and also a Wall Street Journal bestseller with a co-author named Multipliers, How the Best Leaders Make Everyone Smarter. I know, I see from my notes here you're from London, which would account for the accent, and you've got a wife and four kids, so you're a busy guy, uh, and I imagine that you practice what you preach, is that right, given all that you've got going on? Well, I, I, I think I, what's important there is I live in the real world. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't live in the, you know, someone somehow on the on the mountaintop, uh, you know, calling down with none of the obligations that people have. Right. This right. is I, I want to be making a contribution uh, with my family, with my business, uh, with writing. Yeah. You know, and that's and that's really the spirit of what essentialism is all about. Essentialism is about successful people who don't break through to their highest point of contribution. Right. And, and why that doesn't happen and what we can do about it. I love that. I mean, that's, that, that syncs up with our message on Unbeatable Mind beautifully. And also what I really like, Greg, is, you know, I've, I've interviewed a lot of academics. And though it's, it's intriguing, you know, to hear their theories, most of it is from, you know, them studying other people. You know, I'm a big, you know, as a, as a SEAL, I'm a big believer that we've got to practice what we preach. We've got to be in the arena. So these things that you write about in essentialism, I mean, you've had the little experience self and learn how to declutter and focus and figure out, you know, where to really put your mind. So how did you, you know, how did you kind of uh, come about um, this line of thinking? I mean, what were your challenges that led to this? Well, talking about being in the arena, I remember receiving an email from my boss at the time uh, with uh, that said, Friday would be a very bad time for your wife to have a baby. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and Friday was, in fact, when my – well, actually, it was late Thursday night that my daughter was born. And so I'm in the hospital with my wife, and it's Friday morning, and – Instead of being so focused on that clearly important, essential moment, I felt torn. How can I do both? How can I, you know, how can I keep the the boss happy and, and, and go to this client meeting and and also you know still somehow be there for my wife? And to my shame, you know, I went to the client meeting. Oh my goodness! Wow. I and really earned some points from your wife on that one. Yeah, that's right. My. Uh, my new wife thinks it was a bad idea that I did that. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. It's same, same, same. Anna, Anna stayed with me. Uh, but, uh, but she, she, but you know, of course, it, I mean, I remember going to the meeting and, and afterwards, actually, my boss said, the client will respect you for the choice you made. Hmm. And I don't know that they did, but even if they did, I'd made a fool's bargain. Right. Uh, I had, violated something more important for something less important and in a in a in a really important way right. uh, and what i learned from that lesson was simple enough but has had profound uh, impact and that is if you don't prioritize your life someone else will right and so that was that was really the birth of essentialism in its in the form that eventually was written and published i mean that that was 
you know, why is it people do what they do? I mean, people listening to this uh, are, are by definition successful. They're right. certainly motivated. They're right. driven people. Yeah. So why is it that otherwise successful people don't break through to the next level of contribution? And uh, and, and in the story that I shared, one of the reasons that I, I found this happens for people is that uh, is success itself, right. that uh, success creates options and opportunities. Oh, yeah. And that sounds like that sounds like the right problem to have, but it does in fact turn out to be a problem if it leads to what Jim Collins has called the undisciplined pursuit of more. Right. And that's really what I was doing that day is is an undisciplined pursuit of more. How can I do both? How can I shove them both in on the basis that if I do both, that will equal a higher contribution? But actually, it often doesn't. What it does is it is it spreads you too thin. Right. It. It reduces your overall contribution because you're not making a proper trade-off. You're not making a strategic trade-off. You're not saying this thing matters, therefore I will allocate resources to it. You're saying it's all about equal, so I have to do it all, which right. is the trap I think most of us get into. Uh, and so I can ask, I mean, anybody listening to this right now can answer these sort of three questions to get a sense of whether essentialism may be relevant for them, and it might not be. Uh, but if it is, you know, here are the questions. Have you ever found yourself stretched too thin at work or at home yeah. uh ha- have you ever found yourself being busy but not productive yeah <laughs> have you ever found your day like mine was hijacked by somebody else's agenda and that would be a yes so these are the, you know there's more questions we could explore but that's the, those are the questions those that's the litmus test the, the language is really deliberately selected um so if, if the problem is the undisciplined pursuit of more, right. the antidote is the disciplined pursuit of less. less yeah. and, and it is a disciplined pursuit. And everybody is in that case that you are in, right? Everybody is in a situation where they feel that despite their best efforts, they end up feeling stretched too thin. Like that is a very common experience and it's not something to beat ourselves up about. In fact, I, I, I'm really keen to emphasize this, that, that really there's only two kinds of people in the world. Uh, there's people who are lost uh, and then there's people who know they are lost. <laughs> I know that very well from, as, a, as a Navy SEAL from a practical sense. You know, we were either lost or we were becoming lost, and we really wanted to be in the, in the latter, just so that we had some sense that we were on the right track, you know. Well, that that's the thing, you see, and it takes humility to admit this, to say, look, I, I, I'm lost today. If you know you're lost, then you actually, it's a quite zen idea, if you're lost and you know you're lost, you're not lost anymore. <laughs> exactly, because you are where you are. Because exactly, and you know, oh, I don't know where I'm going. So then, of course, just like, you know, if you if you're lost in the car, when I was growing up, I remember sometimes my father would uh, would be lost and might not admit to being lost, and uh, and so that meant we carried on being lost. We carried on being, you know, oh, I feel it's this way. I think it's that way. You just keep being lost. If you admit it, you knew what to do. You just stop and ask for directions, and then you weren't then you weren't lost anymore. You knew what to do, and you get on the on the road. Same in life. Same with this journey. To becoming an essentialist is to keep admitting, look, I don't really know what the, the right, right contribution is to make today. Well, then we know what to do. Make a list of everything you want to do. Evaluate each item. Think through it. Think long term. Create space to figure out what is my highest point of contribution this year, this quarter, this week, this day. What matters most now? And if you can, those things are actually skills a lot of people have. Maybe most people have. Yeah. But it's it, what precedes it is the humility to admit one needs to go through that process. Right. I'm reminded of, you know, my father certainly had that thing that runs through all guys. It, you know, almost, you know, some people, and I put myself in this category at certain times, would rather be lost than to ask for help or to admit that they don't know where they're going. Right? Well, this is, it's exactly right. And, and this is, and think of how much truer this becomes when somebody has actually had some success. Right. I mean, the, 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 there's another phrase from, from Jim Collins I like, which is this idea of the hubris born of success. Right. You know, when you have hubris born of success, it, it can make you very, it make you afraid right. to Failure admit you don't know something. Right. 
failure is not an option. I have to look like I know the answer to everything. And it can make people afraid to try. It can make people afraid to change. Uh, you have a great quote that, that actually supports that. And I got a few of them written down. So this one popped to me is that success can be a catalyst for failure. And I think that's kind of what you're talking about, right? Is that the more successful you are, A, the more opportunities come at you. So you have this decision fatigue or this inability to choose the right one or the right ones. And then B, you're afraid to fail. You know, you're afraid to make, take some bold moves. Yes, because what, what we do is we want to keep on doing the things that, you know, we start playing a different game. Instead of playing uh, to win, we play not to lose. Right. And, that, and that becomes a very different kind of game. And I think when we move into that category where we're sort of living without courage, it's like someone mentioned this to me. I like this phrase. It's like the universe wants its parts back. <laughs> I like that. Cool. That, we, that, that. That we're, you know, that we must be, we must live with courage. Or, or we're not going to know what our contribution right. is. Like it just won't become clear. And so, I mean, it's happened in my life. I'm, I've been living this just this summer. Um, you know, it is time by the usual calendar to write the next book. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things that's interesting about that is I've, I, I, I've got no motivation problem about that whatsoever. In, in fact, from a motivation point, I'm probably more motivated now than I've ever been. Uh, why? Because, uh, because I have an agent who really is ready for me to do it. Uh, you know, follows up with me. I've got a publisher who's amazing partnership that we've, that we've had through the first book and they, they're ready for the next book. Mm-hmm. You've got actually an audience who, you know, I mean, increasingly people ask the question, well, what is the next book and what do you have? And so, so you've got everything aligned to do the next book. And of course, the second book, if the first one was successful, pays better too. So everything aligns to do it. And I've got no shortage of ideas of what to do. And I actually think I know what the the, the next book idea is now, which, you know, I've gone through many, many ideas in order to get that. And with all of that, (laughs) with all of that, this summer, again, I felt this sense that that was not the order I should take it, that it was not time to do it and that I should put it off in favor of some a, a different uh, project that I know almost nothing about. It's hmm. terrifying for me. Hmm. It has been. It was. And now I'm like three, three months-ish past the decision point, which was don't do, don't do the next book. Instead, what it was supposed to do is, is television. Do, do television. Hmm. And, and here's the thing. Like my undergraduates in journalism and and so I spent a lot of times thinking about communications and different mediums and so on. It's not like I know absolutely nothing, but pretty close. <laughs> okay. So you're, you know, not, you're not suffering I, from hubris born of success. I'll, I'll tell you that right now. That's good. good. Well, <laughs> certainly not, certainly not in this area because, because I don't, I've spent almost 20 years thinking about books, titles, ideas, how to put them together, what people's wants are, needs are, so on. In one field, but one of the things I do remember from my journalism degree, degree was, was this idea that the medium is the message. Mm-hmm. I mean, the media massively, massively changes how you would communicate and who you would communicate with. And, and, and it's, it's a completely different thing. Yeah. And, and so all of a sudden, and I have felt this again and again. So when I have done this, this deep, deep work, you know, when I've done the meditation, when I've taken my personal course on the offsite and thought deeply, when I've gone to prayer, when I've, when I've done all that private work, it has become clear to me that this was the right trade-off, mm-hmm. but not easy. <laughs> no. And, and I'll just say that, you know, this is a living, even sharing it's a little vulnerable because you don't know what's going to happen. You know, this is, somebody can be listening to this in a year from now, five years from now, sometimes some, and they're going to go, oh, well, he didn't do anything. Nothing happened. It was, that was a big <laughs> fail. You know, uh, that was, that was too bad for him. But I, I, you know, so, so at one level, it's, it's vulnerable. And on the other level, it's like, yeah, but this is what it means to live as an essentialist is to make trade-offs that you wouldn't otherwise make in pursuit of something that you believe and feel deep down is a higher contribution for you. And, and there have been, I just want to at least tie the story this way for now. It's, it's, it's a work in progress, but you know, right after I made that decision, Steve Harvey, uh, read essentialism and blogged about it, said, I changed my life. 
If I hadn't made the trade-off I'm mentioning, I'd have just gone, oh, that's cool. Steve Harvey really likes the book. That's great. And maybe I would have blogged about it. Maybe. Sent it out to you know, my newsletter list or something. Said, hey, this is cool. You might read what he has to say. I wouldn't have thought beyond that. Mm-hmm. But in, because my attention is this became the this was the priority professional pursuit was to figure this out. As soon as I saw that, oh, well, maybe there's a way to maybe we should like do something. And so we end up talking to his producers and and they're like, yeah, he'd love to do this. Let's let's have an interview. And we did the interview. And that went really, really well, like way better than anything I've done on television before. Mm-hmm. And and as and, and he said, like live real time, he's like, oh, you know what we should do? He says to his audience, we're going to pick somebody. And we're going to do like a, an essentialism life makeover with them. And we're going to do another episode on this. And so, and so what was just a blog turned into a, a, a great, you know, relationship and connection with Steve. And, and that's led to now, you know, it's going to be two, at least two or three appearances. And who knows what will happen after that? Yeah. I, I, I never want to assume the future, but that is still so significant to me. And there's other things I won't get into them right now, but there's other things that have happened. And this is only like two or three months that, uh, that this is a living, breathing example. I, I emphasize it not because the story's about me. It's not about me. Essentialism's not about essentialism and essentialism's definitely not about me. But I wish to say that it's something, something that is real. And the more you live it, in a sense, the harder it gets because you're giving up more each time. You're sat, you're, you're making a different trade off, trade offs that you wouldn't have made right. even the year before. But what also changes is the rewards change for essentialism. So in a sense, it gets harder, but the rewards increase massively. Right. If you think of somebody within whatever field someone's in and you say, okay, you know, cause there's a range of success within those fields. Well, we're talking about TV, so let's just stay on that. And you think about somebody who has like a, th- a thousand times more impact than someone else. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember years ago having just having this sort of little reflection that Oprah doesn't work a thousand times harder no. than someone else, right? Like, so that that's not what explains the impact difference. Right. <laughs> you know, in 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 that case, it has a lot to do with the medium of television, right? Like that has an in- incredible leveraging power, right? Still in America today, still people watch our, uh, television on average four hours a day mm. in America, which is extraordinary, isn't it? Really, because that means that some people are making up for the rest of us. Um, <laughs> exactly. And so. But I just mean to, to, to use this all as an illustration. We've got to learn how to make the right trade-offs. I didn't on the day of my daughter's birth. I'm trying to in various ways now. I'm living this disciplined pursuit. I'm trying. I'm coming back to it. And I have been amazed at the rewards yeah, yeah, yeah. of doing it. So yeah, I'm with you totally, 100%. We, we need to focus on the right things versus more things. Those are your words. Um, and, and my, my work, uh, the, the words I've been using over the last year is to say no in service to the higher yes. And I think that's it. You know, those two, are, those two are basically saying the same things. When you, when you can say no to, to the trivial, then it allows you the space to reflect upon what's the, what's the important thing. What's the one thing you really need to be doing right now? I'd like to kind of just zero in on like when it comes to choosing that one thing, like, let me rephrase this question because I'm, I'm kind of rambling here. It, it helps to know what you're passionate about and what you're, you know, what you're kind of driving for in life, what your purpose is, so that you know what to say no to. And then that allows the opportunities to kind of flow in the right direction. Does that make any sense? You, you, you got to get clear about what you're good at and what you need to be doing so that you have the you know even the potential to make the the right yes decisions otherwise there's just too much noise too much clutter don't know where to point your compass well this is absolutely right we we need we need to have um sort of the right essential intent right the longer term intent because otherwise we're only we're sort of organizing and reorganizing the wrong things i I am, I can use the, the, the television example again, right? If, if I don't take a personal quarterly offsite and think about the bigger picture and think about what you're really trying to accomplish, like what it's really about, then you will just keep prioritizing within a smaller group right. of your existing commitments and existing ideas. Right. And so 
yes, you might do really well at prioritizing between this list. You know, I, I, I could really organize well within all the book ideas that I have. But the potential impact, you know, could be 10x or far greater than 10x if you take the right next path. So, so this idea of really getting, asking the big questions. Yes, what are you passionate about? Yes, what, it can, what can you be great at, you know, in the world? What contribution would you love to make? Yes, what will drive the economic engine of, you know, whatever venture you're pursuing in an entrepreneurial right. sense? Right. These, these are the big questions. And out of them, we, we must find the next level. Right. And uh, I, there's a lot of people who I think, to, to use this metaphor, are trying to make their tent of contribution in their life higher what, by putting in tent poles of the same length yeah. Yeah, I like that. of the ones that they already have. And, and it's never going to work. So they, they, but they just keep on doing more of the same things. And I think that the way of the essentialist is best understood by th- thinking about what's the, what's the longer pole? What's the, what's the thing that will take it to a whole nother level? And that's, and that's, you know, and then never being satisfied with just doing more of the same. Right. You know, you, you, you keep this, the same going. You try and make that run as much on autopilot as possible so that you can discover the next, the next level. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. We talked earlier about challenge, you know, challenging yourself to allow the better version of yourself to emerge. And so in that vein, you know, we can't keep doing the same things and, you know, and expecting different results. We got to do different things to get the results. And those things that you do need to be pointed and, you know, need to be things that are going to super inspire you. That's that essential intent. So where I'm going with this is, you know, I recently did a podcast with Kale Newport. And I know I, I heard you use the term deep work. I think the concept of essentialism and deep work are like a hand in a glove. In order to practice essentialism, you have to do some deep work. Um, and so what is, what is your deep work? How do you get clear about, you know, what to say no to and what to say yes to? What are your practices around that? Well, first of all, let me just frame this. That to me, what you're asking about isn't the sideshow in life. Right. It, it is the very work of life. Like it's not, it's not like a little thing. That we do, you know, once in a while we have this insight and then we, then we go, no, it's what we do. It is our work. Yes, I love and, that. and when we think about it that way, when we think about this sort of as our full time job, and I don't mean paralysis of analysis, right? I don't mean that, but I do mean returning again and again and again and again to this question. What really is my highest point of contribution? What's the next level of my contribution? So what I believe is that people need to have a cadence of reflection. Right. Yeah. Once a year, I mean, we're getting, we're going into like the, the perfect season right now for this, where we go through and evaluate what happened in this year, what the big wins are, what the big challenges are, what the trend of our life is. And we've got to try and gather what the news is of our life, what, what the headlines are, uh, what, what's hidden from view on a day-to-day basis. So we can try and see clearly where we are and where we want to be. And then we have to review 20, the, the next year and, and think through uh, two, three big things that we want to do. Um, put that in priority order across our lives. And so we evaluate the, the whole year. Then I think the next thing in this in this cadence of reflection is put it schedule on your calendar a personal quarterly offsite every ninety days you're taking a full day just to go through a process of again reflection of saying where am I where do I want to be what do I what are the big wins what is the progress let's celebrate the progress and then what are the two or three things I'd like to accomplish um, you know in the next ninety days. And that those become little anchor points to, to keep coming back to. Yeah. Then every every week the same, right? Every week you take at least twenty minutes and think through the same thing. Okay, what is what are the all the things I'd like to do? Get it all out of my head, and then out of those things for this week. What are those? You know, what's the priority today? I mean, for this week, and then every day the same. What? what so so I'm describing a an end to end cadence of reflection. And that's what I think it takes. Uh, And so, you know, I recommend that every day people go through and identify the priority contribution they 
want to make today. You know, sometimes I've you know pushed people on this a little and say, okay, what's the what's the priority personally and professionally overall? Uh, but you ought to come out of that process knowing what's the one thing I want to do personally today, the most important thing, and what's the one thing I want to do most important professionally. You ought to get to that level of prioritization. Here's why. Well, here's some history around this. The word priority came into the English language in the 1400s, and it was singular. One thing, the prior thing, the first thing. And and it's so strange when you think about we hit into the 1900s and it became uh, pluralized. Uh, according to Drucker, that's when the, sort of the first time people started using that term, priorities. And, and the, the strange thing about that word is what does it even mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, by definition, can you have very, very many, very first, before all other things, things? Mm. Uh, the answer by definition is no. It's a madness to even think it. And yet uh, the people listening not been to some meeting where somebody said with no sense of irony at all, here are, here are my 20 priorities. <laughs> and yeah. what, what, what does it mean? How can you can't, you can have 20 important things, but by definition, you can't have 20 priorities. You need the first thing you need to know what it is. So all of this practice, all this cadence of reflection is all about getting to a point where you can win today. And win has a nice little acronym, right? It's what's important now. And I don't believe people can do that without serious reflection no. and, and, a, and a routine of reflection, this cadence of reflection that helps to inform and, and educate that moment. I, I don't find any of what I'm describing easy. I don't. I, I wrestle with this. I wrestle with it constantly. I wrestle with it this morning before we've spoken this morning. I've made my long list of all the different things that feel important feel pulling on me. And at first they all feel like they're all important or they're just all equally important. At first it feels that way and you just have to keep working on it. And you ask these bigger questions. Well, what is your, what's my big goal for the end of this quarter? Okay. That helps inform what some of the things I should be working on. I can ask, well, who's the most important person in my life? Who's the, who's the, uh, the undisputed, you know, like undisputed heavyweight champion of the world in boxing. It's like, who's the undisputed priority relationship in my life? Well, that's my wife. So that informs how I might think about my list. And over time, this process helps me to identify here is the priority. Right. And I was able to identify it this morning. I don't always get there. Yeah. I wish I did every day. I don't always. I did today. And I have done that thing. That thing is done. And it's done because it was identified as the priority. And it really easily would not have happened Isn't that if I hadn't. Because it's only 10, 15 a.m. your time. So the rest of the day is gravy. How amazing is that? You know? Well, it, it, it certainly, you know, it, it, it doesn't feel to me that the rest of my day is now easy. Right. But what it feels is that you have the sense of satisfaction right. of knowing, of, of momentum, of knowing this is the right path and you've just invested in it again. And the cumulative impact of fig- figuring out and doing the priority each day is tremendous. People right. simply underestimate the power of that. I only publicly support companies and products that I personally use and have found valuable. So I wanted to tell you about Qualia. Now, I'm not a supplement geek. I don't find them useful if I'm fueling properly. But when it comes to my cognitive strength and brain health, I am excited about the emerging industry of nootropic supplements. I've been testing Qualia, designed by my friends at the Neurohacker Collective, for several months now. And it's on the bleeding edge of nootropic research and has become the one supplement that I won't go without on a daily basis. Qualia stimulates what's called broad-spectrum cognitive enhancement, which involves optimizing multiple cognitive variables simultaneously rather than focusing on a single variable. For example, it brings me greater ability to focus and makes me feel more connected while not diminishing my overall awareness of the environment. I experience a systematic enhancement of my brain's ability to take in and process information without any stimulating effect, which would make me feel agitated like caffeine or depleted after the effect wears off. Now, for a busy entrepreneur and athlete like me, it's a no-brainer to invest in my brain health with Qualia. You can get on the Qualia bandwagon with me by visiting 
neurohacker.com. That's N-E-U-R-O-H-A-C-K-E-R.com and use the code UNBEATABLEMIND15R. That's UNBEATABLEMIND15R to get 15% off the life of your order. Trust me on this one. You won't be disappointed with Qualia. Is that what you mean by the endowment effect? Is that how the momentum that comes from building upon doing that one prior, priority thing every day? The endowment effect has a very pre- precise definition, and, and it's, it's a healthy and helpful segue here to, to address it. But to do it, I have to talk about the closet, our closets, our, you know, literal closets. <laughs> and uh, because it's such a good concrete illustration of the undisciplined pursuit of more. Right. We have all this stuff in the closet. Oh, yeah. It, it, you go in there to try and find something. Sometimes you kind of find the thing they're looking for. They've got masses of stuff in there, but they don't feel like there's anything for them to wear. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know that experience. And, and I think a lot of people listening just can relate, either them or someone they know well. And sometimes people think, look, if I had a larger closet, that would solve the problem. And uh, until they get a larger closet, and then they realize at least over time that isn't the problem. Right. Uh, it, it helps to have a larger closet, but we tend to fill up more. The space we we tend to fill up the space that we have, and so it fills to the size of them, and then we have the same problem again. And so we realize that whatever the problem is, it's not. It's sort of to do with this idea of cadence again. It's the is we don't have a system for really going through it all and and clearing out all of the the stuff we don't really want. We just add, and there's no there's a system for addition called consumerism, which is constantly telling us we need more and buy this and when to buy it and which things to buy. I mean, there is a system for addition to our closet, but there is no system for subtraction. And so the system of subtraction, what would it look like? We would we would take everything out of our closet, get it all out. We would go through each item selectively. We would eliminate the things that don't meet our criteria, and we would keep only the essential few things that absolutely we love to wear, we wear often, or to use Marie Kondo's term, we would spark joy. If it doesn't spark joy, it's gone. Mm. And, and so we're using this really selective criteria. And then we would finally, the final thing we would do is we would create some sort of routine and system for going through that process regularly, once a quarter, once a month, once a week. However, we go through this process to make sure that only the things we love are in that closet. Does that make sense? Right? That's the system. Absolutely. Now, that's that's the essentialist approach to cleaning one's closet and keeping those things, just the right things in there that we want, right? Less but better clothes. But what do we normally do? What do we do? We stuff it full like we've said. Maybe we every so often give a nod the idea of elimination we go into our closet we take an item we take it off the shelf we look at it and in that moment it's as if to eliminate it as if to pass it along but something magical almost mysterious happens in that moment if we look at that item and we think well you know it might fit me someday it might come back into fashion someday and what, what we're doing in that moment, now this is all full circle to the endowment effect. What we're doing in that moment is we are overvaluing the asset. We're overvaluing it because we own it. Got it. Yep. Uh, ownership has a value. And th- that's good. It's good in lots of ways. But the problem with ownership having a value is it can lead us to overvaluing something. Right. And so the key for that the fix for the item of clothing in our closet is to ask the question, how much would I pay for this item today? Right. If I was buying it now, how much would I pay for it? And that tricks the mind into not evaluating the va- uh, value plus ownership value. It's just the pure value of the thing. Now, this is big metaphor, closet metaphor, but we're not talking about closets. We're talking about the closet of our lives. You know what? You're talking about um, cognitive biases. <laughs> which tend to clog up the the closet of our lives, right? Well, that's right. They they help they help to support the non-essentialism right. way of thinking. Right. 
and we have we, we have cognitive bias for a variety of reasons, but one of them is that we have been sold yes. this idea for a long time. Absolutely. That you're happier if you have more. We we call that here. We call that on a mind the, our background of obviousness. You know the whole uh, uh, consumerism that we've been brought up in TV. You know the the, the culture, even our language, creates this massive cognitive bias that, like we're you know we're like the fish who don't know what air is. You know because we live in water, and so to step out of that is the challenge. That's what you're talking about. How do you step out of that bias? That says everything, or you know, everything is the way it is. When the reality is, it's the way we think it is. Yeah, I love this idea uh, summarized just with the four words: "Fish discover water last." Yeah, exactly. Just, just as you're saying, right? That it's so invisible. Right. And I do believe that non-essentialism, this idea that if you can have it all, if you do it all, you can have it all, is such a dominant idea mm. that it, it's achieved monopoly status. It has. Yes. nobody even sees it. Not nobody. It, that's an exaggeration. Actually, I think that there is an increasing number of people who do, but as a general rule, the culture of our times, I mean, you, you, you know, everyone listening can answer this question for themselves. Where are we on the continuum between undisciplined pursuit of more and disciplined pursuit of less as a culture in the United States today? We're still yeah. racing toward more. I mean, literally clamoring. Yeah, I, if I, I've done this sometimes in when I do a keynote, you know, sometimes these are 5,000 people keynotes and and I'll have the whole audience. I'll walk across the entire, you know, room that we're in. So this is like, you know, a huge, huge center. And I'll just say, look, I want you to snap when you when we get to the point that you think we are as a culture today. So I start over at the essentialist side. So if we lived in an essentialist culture, the whole audience would snap then. And if they think that we're like in the middle, the whole audience would snap in the middle. That would be a normal distribution curve. Right. Nobody snaps at all till we get to the middle. Nobody. Ever. Then almost nobody does until we're, you know, three quarters of the way over the room. Right. Fast majority snap when we get to the very edge. And plenty of people every time say, look, you've got to keep going before I can snap. Right. They can feel it. So what? So the question is, for you today, is so does it matter, and if so, why does it matter that we live in a culture like this? I'm curious about what your thoughts are. Does it matter? Does it matter, and why does it matter that we live in a culture? Well, I think it does because, you know, of course, this is being proved, borne out in many different disciplines. You know, that, that mindset, that more better has to... Uh, a real disruption of balance in every single system known to mankind. Our economic systems, environmental systems, health systems. And so it, it obviously cannot work forever. There is, you know, linearity has to eventually end. It is, you're saying, your argument is, it is not sustainable. It's not sustainable, yes. Both, both at an individual level from a health, peace of mind, you know, we're talking about from essentialism, more leads to more fatigue, burnout, decision fatigue, again, which is your word, and, you know, essentially a breakdown, I think. And that's what I'm seeing a lot of the people who come to us is that they're, they've broken down, you know, the midlife crisis, health crisis, whatever, because they're just trying to keep packing more on. And I see that being played out in families and even companies that are just think bigger is better. And also our, you know, our, our economy is just not working you know, to, to say that we need sustainable growth of, you know, it used to be, you know, four to six percent every quarter. It's, there's a whole new paradigm, you know, like we need to see the water <laughs> as a culture. Yeah, I wonder, I wonder what would happen. I wonder what is possible if we saw the water. I think it would be I, a, 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 a transformation. And I don't know if it would be overnight or if, if it would be a long-term type of thing, but I think it would be transformative. A, a, a revolution that if you could replace the idea that the undisciplined pursuit of more with the idea of the disciplined pursuit of less but better, yeah. that you might see a. I mean, it's it's just fascinating to think through it. What kind of what kind of a culture would we have? What would that look like? What would it feel like? Yeah. What would we have space to do? 
I think it is well, a fascinating thing because people, when we talk about, hey, abundance, right, technology can lead us to abundance, people still think, well, that means I can have more. I, I can have anything I want because it's an abundant world. And what you and I are talking about, and I think what we've discovered personally, is that the more we clutter our lives up with things, with people, with ideas, with commitments, with projects, with then the less value they have, the less time we have for the important things, and the less we feel. Yeah, it, 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 it begs the question of like, what do we really want? Right. What, what do we, what is the end? It's, it's a non-trivial question, isn't it? Because if we go deep enough on this question, we say, okay, so imagine yourself, not, not just on your deathbed, although that's like, you know, normally what we would do if we were trying to do really long-term thinking. But what if we said like 25 years after we're gone and our grandchildren or people that we've influenced that remember us and what we've done, what do we want their life to be? What What is it? What produces this kind of, joy, happiness, contribution, what, what is it? And does consumerism produce this? Uh, and, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm certainly not anti the capitalist system. I'm not, I'm not anti consumption in its, in some extreme form. Uh, it, it, I'm, not, I'm not against all consumption. I, I, I believe in creativity and in entrepreneurship in, in goods and services, but what's the end? How will I know if I've made a great contribution? I think it has it has to do with, you know, I'll, I'll just speak again personally on this. I've kept a journal. I keep a journal pretty, pretty religiously now. Like, I, I don't know that I've missed a day in the last six years. Right. I think I think I've, I've kept it that long and and, and not much, not, not many days in the last 10 or 15 years now. All right. So what I haven't done as well is gone back and read through it again. I'm just starting to get better at making sure I learn from, you know, this, this asset of reflection. And one of the things I was doing just recently as I was, as I was doing it is I found I was surprised at how useless many of the entries felt to me. Not you. <laughs> That's been my experience as well. How, how non-valuable th- th- some of them were, but how amazing some of them were. Yeah. So for me, Something a gaining of perspective for me was was watching that my that, that whenever I've written detailed accounts of me like playing with one of my children mm. and not not just hey I played with a child today but what happened what they said mm-hmm. what the look was in their face what they what what he did next how it all worked I mean that is a, a literal example of something I've read in the last couple of weeks right. and I was able to go to my daughter and say do you remember this. And as we talked about it, even though it would have been gone from our minds completely otherwise, it suddenly was back for us. Nice. And and I thought in that little story is, is just the, the awareness that some things really matter, that a successful society is one in which families thrive, mm-hmm. people have space to be able to make these connections, mm-hmm. that, uh, that there's – that, that there's a you know there's enough for people to be able to get along and work and do well together. I mean, th- this perspective. Uh, in fact, I just give you one other illustration of this that um, I came across when I was researching the book. Is a true story about a man who uh, whose three year old daughter died, mm. and uh, it's a tragic story right from the beginning. And so he was trying to put together a video montage of uh, a time with his daughter. And so he's going through all these vacation videos and all of this. And he, he just found that wherever he was, he would be videoing, you know, one second on his daughter. And then, Hey, we're in this amazing place. We're in the grand Canyon. Let's do panoramic shots of everything. And Oh, look at this thing over there. And, and now, and now given this new perspective of what was essential and which relationships really mattered and things seemed with a, a different and, uh, and truer perspective, he could see that that was, he, he's making a fool's bargain there. This tiny thing is so, so much more. Mm. This tiny vid. So now, of course, he and everyone who hears this story can video differently in their vacations. Right. I know I do. I definitely want to get capture video of my children, of my wife, of me doing, you know, it's, it's these relationships that matter so immensely more than the next most important thing on the list. Right. And so, 
I think this is this is really what we have to be careful about so that we don't efficiently do more of the same stuff. We have to do the right few things because they're so much more valuable. Absolutely. So this is a good way. I mean, we've been going for hours, not an hour now or almost an hour. And I could go and talk to you forever because this is awesome and fascinating. But we probably should wrap it up. But to me, I think. The quality of our life is dictated by the quality of the questions we ask ourselves. And I've heard you relay some incredible questions. And the essence of essentialism is to ask better questions, such as, you know, how can I focus on the right things at the right time for the right reasons? And how can I say, you know, no to the, to the larger yes? So let's kind of just start to wrap this up with what do you, you know, from your perspective, what are the questions and this might be a little bit of a review because you've already, you know, shared some of them. But what are the, the key questions you ask yourself in your daily reflection and your your 90 day reflection? You know, when you're going deep, what are the questions? And when you journal, what are the questions you ask yourself? My, my most repeated question, and I do believe it's an essentialist question, although counterintuitive, is just what are you grateful for? Okay. And where have, where have you seen where have you seen God's hand in your life mm-hmm. um, today? Because if I pay attention to those things, if that I'm, what it means is I'm going to see with better perspective. Right. That's really what a non-essentialist loses. They lose perspective. Right. They are taught to believe that everything is equally important. That, that's a loss of perspective. And so, so for me, by simply saying, what am I most grateful for? Where have I seen God's hand in my life? I can start to be, see in each day what's most important, what matters now. Uh, and it also provides me with some motivation and momentum to go, oh, I want more of that. And I'm making progress in, in my life and, and, and these things are getting there. Uh, and that has proven to be a very rewarding, meaningful, and just success-inducing mm. process. I love that. Yeah. So, what are you grateful for? What and who is most important? And I love this. What matters now? Right. Keep reminding us that now is all we have. Right. And so, ultimately, you know, these types of questions in this practice of essentialism is going to get us to be more present so we can always ask those questions. What matters now? What is our why right now? And stop living for some future that may not exist and stop living for a past that is well beyond us, right? Yeah, it's, it, it can be awfully hard to do this. Yeah. I, think it's, I think it's a mental tension and a mental challenge. It took us years to learn how to use our bodies. Mm. It's going to take the rest of our lives to learn how to use our minds. And it's all about, I do believe this, about trying to see clearly with good perspective and then align our lives with that perspective. That There are so many times, I still struggle with this, where something relatively unimportant will, but, but maybe it's emotional, will try to take center stage, will try to push the priority relationships and focuses of my life off mm-hmm. the stage mm-hmm. and say, look at me. And it's my job as an essentialist to really not allow that kind of bullying in my life, right? Mental bullying in my life. To be able to say, no, that's not the priority relationship and that's not the priority task. And I'm going to insist that the right person's on stage, that the right relationship gets the attention. And uh, and it, it just is this discipline pursuit, right? It's just keep coming back to it. A flight from you know from San Francisco to New York is off track 90% of the time it gets mm-hmm. there on time because it keeps coming back right and so we've got to be very gentle in ourselves that's one of the reasons that i find this this gratitude you know essential essentialist gratitude journal so cathartic and helpful is that yes we're not we're not going to get it all right we're going to get lots wrong but if we look and celebrate the wins and we look and celebrate what what matters most today we will find it and we'll see that we're not, we're doing better than we think. And that can encourage us to keep going in the pursuit of, of a life that ultimately really matters. Awesome. Awesome, Greg. Uh, thanks so much. So your book, Essentialism, uh, found all over the world, probably Amazon, Barnes and Noble bookstores. 
Uh, where can people learn about you uh, on the web and, and what else you got going on? Anything else you want to tell us about? No, this is it. This is it. Just, uh, you know, gregmcewan.com is, uh, is, you know, a place where the, the latest is happening. Sign up for the newsletter and get um, from, from time to time. Uh, insights and things that hopefully are inspiring and helpful in this in this ongoing journey. Awesome. Well, I super appreciate. I know we all do. Everyone listening to this call really appreciates uh, your time today. Also, the work you're doing. Uh, please let us know and let me know if there's anything I can do to support your efforts. We're big believers and um, we'd love to meet in person someday. So, Mark, Mark, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. Awesome. All right, folks, you heard it. Greg McKeown, go check out Essentialism if you haven't already. I know it's been on our reading list. And uh, do the work. You know, it's daily practice. And uh, if, you, if, you, if you can spend that time every morning in your morning ritual, reflecting upon what you're grateful for and what your one thing is for the day, and then link that to your quarter, and then link that to your year, and then link that to your main thing over the next three years, and link that to your, your ethos. And if you can do those things every day and nudge yourselves forward and... Wow, what a difference it will make. Greg, thanks so much. Mike, thanks so much. Bye for now. Booyah, take care. Lock it low, boys. Time to explode, boys. Make sure you get home, boys. They got your back. The pride of the fleets. The bright swinging frogmen of the UDT. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts.